Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel, and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events. LAist Studios. We are not going to be the last generation of writers who can earn a living in this business. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. You just heard from screenwriter Chris Kaiser. He is one of the co-chairs of the Writers Guild of America's Negotiating Committee. More than two weeks into the writers' strike, the WGA is ramping up its attacks on the poverty pleas that are coming from film and TV studios and streamers. More on that later, but first... You Hurt My Feelings. That is the title of the latest film from writer-director Nicole Holofcener. Her previous films include Please Give, Lovely and Amazing, Friends with Money, and Enough Said, which starred Julie Louis-Dreyfus and the late James Gandolfini. You Hurt My Feelings marks her second time working with Louis-Dreyfus. She plays a writer who is married to a therapist who's played by Tobias Menzies. In this scene, he is looking at his eyes in the mirror and thinking about getting some work done. What are you, nuts? Well, you get Botox. Well, I just get a little bit right here. You know, I can still move my eyebrows. Watch, watch. Oh, yeah. So expressive. (laughs) Since when are you so vain? I don't know. I was was young and hot. Well, you're still younger than me. The film is about what we say or don't say to the ones we love, to show them we care or just get along, and why it isn't always the truth. I want to ask you first about overheard conversations, um, which is a fulcrum um, in this film. Mm-hmm. There's an author in your film, played by Julie Louis-Dreyfus, and she overhears her husband, who is a therapist, talk about how he really doesn't like her writing. Um, And she overhears this, obviously, without his knowledge. And it's a turning point in the film and kind of a turning point in their relationship. Was that something, because so much of your stories are inspired by things that happened to you or your friends, is that drawn from some sort of personal experience? You know, I have to say, thankfully, it's not. Um, But it is one of my greatest fears. And, of course, I think that um, people are lying to me. So... Uh, I mean, not all the time, but some of the time. Um, I worry that they're lying to me. I think I can tell when they're lying to me, and it's humiliating. Um, And sometimes I wish they would just tell me the truth. It's like, just come on. I can tell you didn't like it. Maybe you liked the last one, or maybe not. Um, But no one's ever going to say that. Um, And it was just a a fear um, that something like that could happen. And I'm sure it has happened. I just don't know about it. I'm sure um, that many of my loved ones prefer one movie or over another or, you know, think they're crap or whatever. Um, but it's, it, that's kind of what made me want to explore this topic. So many years ago, not that many, 
when I was working at the LA Times, I was going down the stairwell and I was behind a fellow reporter and her editor. And it was two flights and they didn't know I was behind them. And they spent the entire two flights or this reporter, she spent the entire two flights trashing my work and just went on and on and on. And I decided not to say anything, mm-hmm. but it definitely colored my relationship in working with this person going forward. It was, it was like unbelievable. And it was total, tr- like they just trashed you. Yes. Anyway, that is, I know how damaging it can be personally, mm-hmm. but your situation is different because mm-hmm. it is a, a husband and wife right. talking. Um, I just remembered one. I was screening a short film that I had made at NYU and I thought it was, you know, pretty terrific movie. I was really proud. Everyone told me how great it was. And someone behind me said something like, when is this going to end? And, and it was a short film? Well, it was a too long short film. It was 20 minutes. And in retrospect, you know, pretty awful and really long and really slow. And my first one, and I had a horrible time making it as well, but... Um, it was devastating. And, and then later my stepfather actually said that, you know, maybe I should have a plan B after he saw that movie as well. So that, I wasn't so happy about that. <laughs> um, I can imagine. And I'm really glad that I got better. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about adjectives because they're very important to Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character. She sees dust jacket uh, blurbs and what other people get is a blurb perilously close to perfect. What she gets isn't quite as nice. It's a terrific read. Right. And that feels like anybody in the creative enterprise looking at quotes of their own work. Is that something that that is personal to you about blurb quotes? Perilously close to perfect. I don't know if that's a real saying, but it sure could be. Um, it, it was. <laughs> believe it or not. Was it about your film? Yes. Aww. And it was thrilling. And I thought, oh, I have to put this in because who would ever believe that? And if it hadn't been written about one of my films, um, I would just want to kill the person who, who got that quote. Um, yeah, of course I look at quotes and i very choosy about the quotes that go on my own work. And I mean, I'm really kind of making fun of myself with that, um, because those things do mean way too much, right? Yeah. They do. They do to filmmakers. It's like not something that happens to journalists, but yeah, certain filmmakers can remember that I know, they don't remember the good quotes, they remember the bad reviews, and they can quote them verbatim. I can't say I can quote them verbatim, but um, yeah. So the last time you directed a movie that you wrote was... Probably a decade ago, right? Uh Uh-huh. So a lot can happen in 10 years. How much of life experience is reflected in this film? And was there something that happened to you that made you want to go back? I mean, all of your films outside of Land of Steady Habits were written by you. Was that experience interesting, but you felt you had more stories to tell? Mm -hmm. What about the, the switch back to things that are vaguely autobiographical, inspired by life, whatever we want to say they are. Completely inspired by life and autobiographical in a non-literal way, for sure. Um, Well, I don't make movies very often and I don't have a lot of ideas that stick with me. So I love the opportunity to direct somebody else's stuff. 
Um, I've been trying to write my own screenplay since Enough Said, and um, I think I actually did write one, but I didn't like it. And this one took a long time to finally find its place, and um, it took a long time to make it good. Um, but those are the ones that um, I love doing the most. And I, I don't really think about what's happened in the last 10 years or how I've matured or blah, blah, blah. It's, it's more just writing about me and now and the things that are curious for me, are interesting, inspiring, embarrassing, my worst fears, um, my friends' lives, and some of them questioning, you know, this is, you know, I don't have many years left. I'm not even middle-aged anymore, um, beyond. And uh, am I doing anything that has meaning? Um, of course, I ask myself those questions. Everyone I know asks them. So it, it was very close to home. When you said it wasn't easy to write, what was the mm -hmm. biggest creative obstacle in terms of putting the story together? What was the nut to crack? Well, it was a completely different story at one point that I got sick of writing, but it was kind of a Julia character. And then um, I wrote it with the, diff the male character. Tobias's character had a very different job and a different character, and I wasn't happy with that. And neither were financers. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It just took me forever. And, you know, I did the last duel and I did some television shows and all that. Um, so I was busy and there you go. I mean, I'm not prolific and I'm generally not a fast writer or I might write a first draft quickly, but, but it's a mess. I'm going to ask you about casting because I think there are a couple of actors with whom you hadn't worked before. Yeah. Some you had, mm -hmm. um, what does that do to you as a filmmaker? You obviously have people you work with over the years. When there's somebody new thrown into the mix, how does that challenge you as a storyteller? And what do you learn from that actor who hasn't done movies with you before? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I have to learn how they like to be directed. And not all actors are the same. And I've been really fortunate that the actors I've cast, and I don't know why, kind of all work the same way. Nobody demands an enormous amount of rehearsal. Nobody demands a, you know, a big binder full of backstory. Um, they are intuitive. They seem to get the script. We rehearse a little and we have fun. And they like to be directed. Um, I have had on occasion, mostly on television shows, when I don't know how the actors like to be directed or if they like to be directed, I've been snapped at. Um, you know, been given stink eye, uh, you know, uh, some actors I can say, try it happier. Seriously, because they know where I'm coming from. Right. You know, maybe this is, maybe you're happy hearing this, maybe you're not, let's try it lots of different ways. And some actors will stare at me like, are you seriously giving me that direction? And then I feel like an idiot. Um, you could say, should I give you a line reading then? I know, exactly. <laughs> Which is the worst thing <laughs> yeah, to say to an actor. Yeah, worse. Um, so that's the challenge for sure. Um, in this movie, I don't know, everybody kind of worked the same way and was really game and collaborative. And it, you know, it, nothing was held up because of one actor's um, choices or, or um, method. There's a literary agent in the film who says of... Julie Louis-Dreyfus Louis is writing, you're not a new voice, mm -hmm. which is something that is said in this business a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's just, 
it's not even like hidden. It's just pure ageism. Like if you're a certain age, you don't have a story to tell, and that story isn't relevant to anybody. I know, John. You know, we're just we're right on the edge. <laughs> we might be out of a job pretty soon. Our voices are older. But it's not a. It's not anything to do with the quality of the story. The no. story could be written by a 12-year-old. It's the author. And mm -hmm. the, the assumption is that somebody of a certain age can only tell a certain kind of story. Right. Um, obviously, your films are about people who tend to be your contemporaries in terms of age. Mm -hmm. But older directors can do stories about younger people and younger directors. I mean, yes. look at Sarah Polly and Away From Her. Mm -hmm. um, can do stories about people who are much older than yeah. her. Yeah, and men can direct movies about women beautifully. And women can direct movies about men beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in that mm -hmm. tiny comment, you're saying a lot about mm -hmm. how people are seen as artists, that there's only a certain kind of way that you are seen. And if you're not seen as the thing that people want, you're not valued. Right, right. I mean, I don't get sent thrillers to direct. I'd love to direct a thriller, but I get sent scripts that are that resemble my own. And, you know, I love making those kind of movies, but I'd love to do something different. So you want to go the um, Patty Jenkins, do uh, Monster, and then do I, Wonder Woman. Yeah, I know. It I took, can't her, took her a decade to yeah. get, get another gig. Yeah, well. Um, every film has a scene or a moment that doesn't quite fit, that you hold on to <laughs> near and dear, mm -hmm. and either it's, it's superfluous or it just doesn't make the edit. What is that scene in this film? Well... Of course, I don't think it is, oh. but I know what it is. I mean, it's the it's the scene in the doctor's office, right? Is that what you were thinking? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what does that have to do with anything? And yet, I wanted to show that Julia's character does love her mother and does take care of her. She might be a whack job, in, you know, infuriating, frustrating, but she's there for her, and especially in the following scene when they're at the coffee shop and she grabs her hand I wanted some warmth between the the two women and I you know I did read a review recently where someone said I think you should have cut that scene out what the reviewer is now a studio executive yeah exactly and and you know I thought my movie's short fuck it I'm gonna keep it in I like it who doesn't want Jeannie Berlin on screen more and it was much longer trust me <laughs> I'm glad I knew you enough it. to trim it uh, Nicole, I love yeah. hanging out with you, you and talking too. with you. Thank you. Thank you. That was writer and director Nicole Holive Center. Her new movie is called You Hurt My Feelings. You can see it in theaters starting May 26th. Coming up after a break, the latest news on the WGA strike. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. 
Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Welcome back. It's time now for my weekly arts and entertainment news chat on Elias 89.3 Morning Edition. This week, Julia Paskin was in for host Suzanne Watley. So, John, we are now more than two weeks into the Writers Guild of America strike, and there have been a lot of developments since uh, you last stopped by. So what's the latest? Well, let me get through a few strike headlines pretty quickly, and then we can take a broader look at the work stoppage. First, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, SAG-AFTRA's contract with film and TV studios and streamers doesn't expire for more than a month, and negotiations don't even start until June 7th. But SAG-AFTRA has just told its 160 thousand members that it wants a strike authorization vote and that means that if the strike authorization vote passes balloting is ending on june 5th then sag aftra can call a strike as soon as its current contract expires on june 30th if it doesn't have a new deal the wga did the same thing with its members and i think the thinking is that it brings more pressure to bear on the alliance of motion picture and television producers which is the bargaining entity for the studios i should say that you and i are members of sag aftra but we are not covered by the contract that I have been talking about. Okay. So what else has been happening um, in reaction to this work stoppage? Well, you can read into this whatever you want, but I think it's an ominous sign. And that is that earlier this week, in its preview of its fall schedule to advertisers, as part of the annual Upfronts in New York, ABC unveiled its schedule. These are some of ABC's shows coming out this fall. Stop me when you spot a theme. Celebrity Jeopardy, Celebrity Wheel of Fortune, The $10,000 Pyramid, America's Funniest Home Videos, Mm. Shark Tank, Bachelor in Paradise, Dancing with the Stars, The Golden Bachelor, 2020. Are you starting to... Um, Yeah, I'm catching on. There's not a single scripted series among any of those shows. It's all reality shows and game shows which are not covered by the WGA contract. Okay. And you also talked to Chris Kaiser, the co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee earlier this week. What did he tell you? Well, two main things. First, in his words, that current WGA members are, quote, not going to be the last generation of writers who can earn a living in this business, unquote. Here's more of what Kaiser said about how companies value or don't value their workforce. It is existential for us. It is detrimental to the cultural future of the United States. And to some extent, the world, we are not going to let it happen. And at some point, those companies are going to have to come to terms with that, that we make the stuff that makes them rich. They cannot do it without us. And so they're better off coming to the table than watching us march and shut them down day after day. So second, and it's kind of related to the first quote, Kaiser talked about how the film and TV studios and streamers minimize the value of screenwriters and say they can't pay them what WGA negotiators are asking for in the current talks, even as the studios and streamers have done pretty well in the past, thanks to the content that screenwriters themselves have created. When we negotiate with them, and we only do it once every three years, and we say, look at all that money we made for you, they say, yeah, you can't look back at that. We can only look forward into the future. You don't get a piece of what you made for us. So now we're looking forward in the future, and they say, well, we're not so sure. We're not making as much money right now. But, by the way, on our earnings calls, Disney tells everyone, we're going to be profitable next year. Netflix is already making $6 billion in profits this year. And you have to negotiate with us altogether. But we don't feel like we're making enough profit yet to pay you. 
uh, let me just say the producers themselves say they have spent a lot of money creating these new platforms that create new work opportunities for screenwriters. Disney has spent spent slash lost more than $10 billion establishing its streaming platforms, including Disney+. Plus. Disney remains profitable. However, in its last quarterly earnings, it made more than a billion dollars. So the argument from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers is we are making money, yes, but we've also invested a lot of money and need to monetize those platforms first. Well, John, thank you so much. Thank you. After the break, we go back to the Writers Guild of America headquarters across the street from the farmer's market. The offices are filled with strike placards. Everybody there is wearing a T-shirt about the Writers Guild United. I'm going to talk more with Chris Kaiser, co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Welcome back. As the writer's strike continues, it seems that an agreement between the Writers Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP, might not be imminent. But who knows? It's Hollywood after all, and the town not only likes cliffhangers, but also happy endings. To find out more about what it's been like to be at the table in the contract talks, I spoke with Chris Kaiser, co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee. He was one of the creators of the TV series Party of Five and is the showrunner of the HBO Max series Julia about Julia Child. If you look back at the history of Writers Guild strikes, they are almost always tied to the emergence of very important platforms, video cassettes, cable television, pay cable, internet, streaming, that every time that there is a negotiation or an impasse, it's usually about an emerging platform of distribution. But there's something that is not a platform, and that is AI. So when you think about platforms, you can define what they are and maybe think of a formula how writers are going to be compensated for new work or work on those new platforms. AI is not a platform. So how do you wrap negotiating terms around something that is as amorphous as artificial intelligence? Do you mind if I re reorient that question Absolutely. a little bit? Okay. So I think you're right. The technology changes are often at the heart of what goes on in these negotiations. In many of the negotiations that ended up in strikes, 
the hope was on the part of the writers to be able to benefit from the upside of that new technology. For example, it was critically important for us in 2007 and 2008 to have jurisdiction over the internet because we saw that content was moving there, and without that jurisdiction, we would be unprotected. So that's, that's the way it generally goes. This negotiation, this strike is a little bit different. This strike is about writers, and by the way, not just writers, but all of the guilds and unions in this business sinking feeling that the move of the companies into the future is to meaningfully devalue labor, to deny us the compensation that's possible for us to continue in the profession. Um, and you got to think about it that way. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think of it as streaming, for example, that changes everything. The short order regime of television where the, the number of episodes we made didn't fit neatly into a calendar year and allowed for all kinds of mischief around how long production took place and how long writers had to work opened the door to exploitation of labor. But it wasn't that itself because there were short orders for a decade before we had all the problems we had now. I worked on a short order show on a cable channel. Can you define shorter? So, okay. So in the old days, uh, we would work for 20, we'd make 22 episodes a year. And those 22 episodes would take approximately a year to make. And writers would be employed throughout that year. They'd have a couple of months off. It was enough work, even if you had bad years, to make sure you could earn a living. So what happened since then is that with the move to cable premium cable and now streaming, those orders have shrunk to 8, 10, 12 episodes. That in and of itself changed the compensation structure for writers. And that was tough, but it wasn't existential the way it is now, because we still worked more or less according to the way the creative process wanted us to work. We worked for a certain number of weeks over the course of producing those episodes. And writing and production happen side by side as it does. So here's the change. The change is the introduction into this business of new companies tech companies, and sometimes old companies that have become so large that they followed, uh, from a corporate point of view, the philosophy of the tech companies, which is to apply standards of productivity and efficiency onto the process. That's how you think about AI. So the problem for writers with AI is that if we permit a machine to make the writing more efficient, even though it's not creative, even though it cannot have authorship. If we allow the idea that, uh, that one writer can sit in a room with a machine and the machine can write drafts and the writer can polish them, then we eliminate the need for writers. But not because creativity isn't being done, but because a machine that provides efficient plagiarism, I always call it the plagiaristic average of all of us, is now in the room. But it's not just AI. And so that's the thing, John. The companies are looking to have as few writers for as few weeks produce as much work as they can crush out of us. And that's been the central problem into which you have to include the AI part of the equation. The thing that this strike is about for television and features has its own issues is the idea that they have fundamentally changed the structure of creativity inside a freelance workforce to make it impossible for us to earn a living. Aren't writers, in a way, complicit? Because I've asked some other writers who have been in those mini rooms, as, as they are known, and they have obviously become a huge issue in the negotiations. And I said, then why did you do it? Because you are creating the problem by, by working in those circumstances. What's your answer to the WJ members' complicity in creating that model? Because they could have said no. 
writers have to survive. And so they take the jobs that are available. And when all the companies offer them is a job that doesn't pay them sufficiently. And the alternative is not to work at all. You get us in a position where we work for, do that work. There's a parallel in features, right? Where feature writers are asked to do endless free rewrites and they do them because they need to keep their jobs and they're afraid of losing them. And no one, if they were in an even um, negotiating position with those who offered them employment, would ever accept those terms. But they're all accepted in sense under duress. The duress that there is no way around that. And so I, th I think it's hard to blame writers for a system that imposes on them an economically unviable future and presents as an alternative retirement from the business. Let me, uh, let me present a part of the AMPTP's argument, and I'll argue on behalf of the Walt Disney Company. Um, the Walt Disney Company has lost now more than $10 billion, with a B, establishing its streaming platforms, primarily Disney+. Plus. The company is still profitable. It made a billion, $1.4 billion, I think, in its last quarterly earnings. So Disney can say to the Writers Guild, with a straight face, I think, we have spent $10 billion creating these new platforms for you. We need to make sure that we can continue to make money to build that kind of, to maintain and grow that kind of platform. And if we have to pay more residuals, that the margins that make our investment in that platform no longer are viable. What is your response to that kind of argument? It's a bad argument. I'll tell you a number of reasons why. First is it a bad argument or is it an argument that they make? Am I representing the MPTP's argument okay? Am I, am I mirroring what they're saying? I think you are mirroring a sense of what they okay. might say, to be honest with you. They didn't articulate it quite okay. as well as that uh, <laughs> okay. often, but but yes. Well, why they, is it that? What do they say? They say, we can't afford this, right? We can't afford it. We can never afford it. Here's the thing. They can never afford to pay us, right? So for the last five years or so, the company's made $100 billion off of our work. During that period of time, television writer salaries have decreased by 24%. Feature writer salaries have decreased by 14%. When we negotiate with them, and we only do it once every three years, and we say, look at all that money we made for you, they say, yeah, you can't look back at that. We can only look forward into the future. You don't get a piece of what you made for us. So now we're looking forward into the future, and they say, well, we're not so sure. We're not making as much money right now. But by the way, on our earnings calls, Disney tells everyone, we're going to be profitable next year. Netflix is already making $6 billion in profits this year. And you have to negotiate with us altogether. But we don't feel like we're making enough profit yet to pay you. So we're in a trap there, which they, they never have a moment. There's never a day when we walk in and say we can afford to pay you. So the second thing about that is this. Almost all the money that we're talking about is money that can be absorbable into the budgets of the stuff they're already making. Our pay has declined substantially. In television, for example, writers' uh, show budgets have gone up by 50%. They're spending a lot of money on production. These companies who are, who are, you know, who are profitable yet. They're spending a lot to make content. They're just spending less and less of it on writers. And we're saying at some point you have to make room inside those budgets to pay for writers. So I don't think to say that they can't afford it is fair. The other thing I would say is this, like there are two kinds of unprofitable companies. The kind of unprofitable companies that are spending more than they bring in. Those are truly unprofitable companies. Then there are companies like Amazon for all those years that said, we make no profits. We make no profits. And they keep reinvesting and buying back their stock and reassessing with their business model, and they come out of the other side, the biggest companies in the world. And that's what Disney is. That's what all of these major streamers are. They are, they are reorienting their business, investing in themselves, 
making plans to devour each other and become oligopolistic masters of the entertainment business, all the while claiming that they can't afford to pay us. It's just not true. And by the way, writers know it. There were years in which I think writers would have been susceptible to this argument, but you may notice that no one is susceptible this time around. As we say, we hear what you say to the world about how much money you've made and are going to make. So the fact that you claim that we happen to walk in on a Wednesday and a Wednesday's a bad day for you is not an argument that anyone wants to pay attention to. Is there anything I didn't ask that is top of mind for you? I think what people need to understand, and I think writers understand it, is that this is a job that's full of of precarity. It's a tenuous business. But there are changes that have happened over the last few years, driven mostly by the rise of the tech companies and the kind of super conglomeration of the other companies that has changed fundamentally a business that's produced incredible entertainment and enormous profits for a decade. Why the companies would choose to kill the golden goose, we don't know. But we are not going to be the last generation of writers who can earn a living in this business. That was writer and producer Chris Kaiser. He co-chairs the WGA's negotiating committee. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman, who is also my session director. The editor is Suzanne Levy. Listeners like you help make Retake possible, so please donate now at elias.com forward slash join, and thanks. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.